some good rock and roll coming up for you now. The guys from Kiss have arrived. They snuck in the back door. You spend your whole life doing the first few albums, and then suddenly everybody needs your attention. Erica M. The invention of the VJ. A flashback on the career that made them who they are today. On this episode. Watching yourself on this big screen is like eating your own vomit. Here's our feature this week. Some, an interview that we did some time ago now, but uh, somehow all comes around. Big Chief, City Limits. This is Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ. Now, here's Erica M. Hi there, I'm Erica M. And thank you so much for tuning into this episode of my Reinvention of the VJ podcast. On the show today, we're going back, way back back to a prehistoric time when much music wasn't yet conceived, let alone born. As most of you know, it was the new music TV show on City TV that set the stage for a national music channel. And it was City Limits that sealed the deal. On today's show, my guest was one of the very few people behind the scenes who helped bring much music to life. Eventually was thrown on air and stayed with the company for close to two decades with jobs in front and behind the camera. I'm looking forward to reminiscing with Simon Evans, host of The Edge and one of the longest standing producers on the nation's music station. Before we jump into our interview, just in case this is your first time tuning into my podcast, what have you been waiting for? Anyway, as always, I like to give just a little bit of background on the show before we get chatting. So reinvention of the VJ podcast is my up close and personal conversations with the eclectic and talented personalities like Simon that you may have grown up on much. Some I worked closely with, right Simon? Others may have been on air after my time. But as Simon will attest, while our personalities and approaches have been very different, there's one thing that we all have in common. Each of us played a small part in Canada's most influential pop culture platform. And then we left at different times for different reasons. Each of us set off on our next adventure. And it's that story of what happens after much, the reinvention, the resilience, the luck, the crap, the perspective. That's what intrigues me. My chat with Simon is definitely going to be a trip down memory lane for all of us. And hopefully it's gonna spark some interesting tidbits or insights into what it is that it will take for you to get what you want in life, or maybe how to reinvent or deal with transition and tough times. And maybe you'll even end up redefining what success is. A lot of us are going through challenging times these days and we're being forced to reevaluate our priorities and make some tough choices. So maybe this conversation will help with that. Which brings me to a guy I worked very closely with, man, for, I don't know, 14 years? But funny enough, we really never got to know each other very well. So now's my chance. Simon Evans, thank you so much for agreeing to hang out with me on Reinvention of the VJ. How are you? Erica, it is my pleasure. Uh, the intro was, uh, yes, I was trying to think, yes, the crap. I have a lot of crap if you wish to speak about that. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Yes, we have known each other now for God almighty, what, 
close on 40 years? Almost 40 years. You were 20, right? Yep. When you, I was, we met. And oh, how old cool. were you? You were the same, right? I was, I would have been, when we met, I would have been 24. What? Five. Wait, you maybe? were older than me? Yeah. Well, I'm 16 right now. So am I. Well, I will be. Then maybe we met earlier. We're all getting older. My memory's starting to fade. <laughs> so if my facts aren't exactly lining up with time dates, please don't take me to task on that because, you know, I'm, I, yeah. Simon, we'll just, we'll just make shit up and make this podcast really interesting. Oh, if we have to make shit up. Fine okay? then. then I'm good. I'm in with two feet. No okay. problem. Yeah. So I was actually hoping that you would remember this stuff, but now you're asking me to remember it. So we'll try and figure this out. What I remember most importantly is that I was working in the office at 99 Queen Street East. I had just finished university at Ottawa University, my degree in communications. And the day that I finished in the summer, because I did summer classes to speed up my university, I moved to Toronto and I started work the next day, answering the phones for the new music. And in walks Simon Evans and Morgan Flurry. And you were the, in quotation marks, the interns. Yes. So were you actually an intern? And what is the real story about you landing in that office at the same day that I started my first day at City TV? Well, I, I tell you, we, um, so we went for a pre-intern interview, which in those days, um, okay, much music, uh, City TV that started the whole thing, as you talked about earlier in the uh, in your intro, um, was the pre-run it to Much Music, which you know nationally everybody knows, but locally it was all City TV. So we went to a local college, Centennial College, in the RTA program, and that's Radio and Television Arts. Yeah, Radio and Television. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the dying art of radio and television. Um, and um, so we, uh, myself and Morgan Flory, who you, you mentioned, uh, were friends at college. And um, we both wanted to work on new music. So our instructor called it new music. They've never had really an intern before. So they were like, yeah, sure, they want to work here. Why would they want to work here? I'm like, because we kind of love music and love the show. And um, we went for the interview beforehand, and they were like, oh, yeah, well, you start because we'll need people in the office, blah, 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 blah. And then, yeah, the day we show up, um, I think I don't know if you started the very day we, you showed up or a couple of days later, but anyway, they mentioned you were coming, right? And it was like, oh, okay, so now they've got someone else. And we were like, oh, does that mean that we're not going to get Hired. You know, it was one of those deals because you're right out of, well, not right out of school. We were in the last year of college. Um, and it was like, yeah. And then there you were. You showed up. Um, Daniel Richler had just been hired as well, who was a reporter slash on air for um, new music, uh, who then became an author. And I don't know what he does now. I haven't seen him in years. Um, but yeah, so it was, um, it was an interesting um it was an interesting start because we kind of were like, oh, now do we have to 
you know, like we thought there might be a job and then you took the job and then, you know, it's like weird. It was a weird um, intro to you. I mean, um, but I think things worked out swimmingly for everyone. <laughs> I think. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, but it was an interesting start. Uh, that's how I started it. That much. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Uh, new music. It's interesting when I think back to my days at city TV and much that there's an irony because internally there was not a lot of communication, even though we were in a communications company, didn't you find like nobody knew what the hell anybody else was doing or why they were doing and things would just pop up and say, they would say, okay, now you're doing this. And we're like, wait, what, what, what just happened? Or who's that person? Oh, oh yeah. No, that was the entire, that was our entire lives. No, I mean, it would be like, there was, you know, there was, there was, a, there was good things and bad things about that. Right. Whereas, yes, you didn't really get any information. Um, so suddenly it'd be like, oh, by the way, we're doing this. At the same time, though, you could go with an idea and literally, if it didn't cost them any money, meaning, you know, like literally it didn't cost any money, they'd let you do it and it would go on air. And I was like, like you, I was what I would consider relatively a quote unquote kid. And I'd be like, you know, I want to do a show on this. And John Martin, who was our boss at the time, another, I'm a Brit to start with in case people don't know. And he was another Brit and he was just like, ah, yeah, mate, just go do it, do it. I'm like, and you do it and go, John, you want to see it? He's like, nah, I trust you. It was like, okay, so I'm putting stuff on the air, unseen by <laughs> anyone, you know? And I was like, you know, you're right, 23, 22. I know, it was crazy. But, you know, that was the beauty of it. And I think it worked for them. And I think a lot of creativity came out of it and letting people explore their ideas and, and if they were passionate about it, because, you know, you were passionate about music, I was. Um, yeah, I think it really, it worked in that favor. But at the same time, you're right. Suddenly you'd be thrown into something and it would be like, what? What are we doing? <laughs> oh, Okay. I've never done that before, but well, we'll give it a go. So yeah, it was um yeah, it was an interesting way to do it. And especially with John at the helm, um, you know, unfortunately, rest in peace, he's no longer with us. Uh, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this, you know, his office was literally across the street in the bar. You know, it was like, you know, so you'd go and see John. It was kind of like for a meeting. Sometimes it would be in his office, which wasn't really his office, because he'd be in the bar. Because he could smoke and he could drink and do whatever. And it was like, it was crazy when you think about it. Oh. It kind of worked at the time. It made all absolute sense. And now it was something like, they kind of like out of Mad Men or something. You know, the the TV show was like crazy. It's like, yeah, we're sitting down, have a drink, you know, let's go. It's like, okay, it's only 1130, but oh, sure, yeah, well, why not? Did you feel an affinity with John Martin because you were both Brits? Uh, no, not so much. Um, you know, John was, uh, like we're both Northern England Brits. He's from Manchester, which is Northern, you know, I know you people know this. What am I saying? Uh, I'm from Liverpool. Uh, perhaps, perhaps there was a little bit of something going on. Perhaps he saw a little bit of, you know, the Northern England in me or something. Um, but you know, just as much as I think anybody had any kind of thing with John. I think he appreciated a bit of spunk, which we had, you know, and if you fought with him, like he'd, you know, he'd listen to you and 
if he came in with a valuable argument, like he would, and you could yell at him, which was great. You know, I remember the opening night of um, when we launched Much Music, and um, of course, typically John, right? He shows up. We're supposed to have a six-hour script for the show. Uh, and we're launching like at six o'clock and he comes in about five thirty with an hour and a half of the script. And we're like, where's the rest? And he's like, Oh, we're going to make it up as we go along. <laughs> it's a live show, live show. Now all new, right? National launch of a new service. Yeah. So that was John. So at one point I strangled him. I remember that in the control room or tried to, and he's like, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he probably had a few. Uh, you know, it was like, that was, I don't know, that was the way it was. It, it was mental and we made it work. And you, you thought on your feet and we came up with ideas on the spot. And yeah, and everybody was involved, you know, on air people as well as behind the scenes people. And, you know, the TDs and the, the, um, all the technical people. You know, the, you know, the guy in the audio room had an idea, we'd do it. Of all know? the people that I've spoken to, you are the most uh, knowledgeable about the connection between sort of the crew, and I'm using sort right. of, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. whatever they're I know, we're all doing air quotes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> air quotes, and then yeah. uh, the hosts and or the on-air people. From your point of view, tell me about the connection between or the working relationship between the technical crew and the on-air people? Did you, do you feel like they were on the same page? Was there resentment? Was there camaraderie? Um, I think especially in the early days, like when you started and, you know, and we were there, we were all in it together kind of thing. It really was like, you know, we'd all show up and make a show. Obviously, the videos that we were going to, uh, to play were programmed and the guests, that we had coming in for that day. And we had, as you know, a slew of them, right? Um, especially, you know, once it, once it got a bit of momentum, like everybody was coming, they were always going to us, right? So besides those kind of tent poles, if you will, during the day, like everything else was up for grabs. So, you know, if somebody came up with an idea, like if a camera guy or girl said, hey, you know what we should do? We should pretend that Eric is, you know, trapped in a box and can't get out or something. It was just like ridiculous when you think about it now. But there was no script to it. There was no rhyme or reason. Like you obviously came in with your notes of what you were going to say for the day. And, and everyone was kind of like, because we, we were there live for six hours. You know, there was no breaks kind of thing. So you just sat there twiddling your thumbs to a little to a bit of an extent. It was like, okay, what can we do to to lighten things up. And I, I, I think most of the staff that they'd hired were kind of free spirited kind of people. They weren't union type guys, nothing against union people. Don't get me wrong. I'm a big union supporter, but you know, like it wasn't like I'm just there to do a job. Everybody was there to contribute as well. And if they had an idea no one ever, you know, it was like, you know, you're just an associate producer or a camera guy. Like it was like, no, this isn't anybody's show. This is everyone's show, if you will. It was very um, like a socialist sort of um, society in a way. And, uh, you know, like you'd come up with an idea and, you know, like and the other thing too was like sometimes it would be like, I don't know. We're like, ah, let's just do it and see what happens. And then you just, 
It would just go on air. And it was like, was that good? I can't tell. Who cares? You know, it fills time in a way. You well, mentioned um, you mentioned uh, the fact that it was a socialist kind of society, and you mentioned the different people who were on the crew, and what, and you said some of the cameramen or women, etc. Yeah. And I remember that I was very proud at much because the women and the men did the same jobs. It seemed like it was a very I I don't know if the word is feminist, but certainly a very equal opportunity place to work where people oh, yeah, were given yeah. incredible opportunities, no matter what color their skin was, what gender they were, even if they had disabilities, they were, they were invited to participate. Is that true from your perspective? It was almost like, you know, if you, if you showed up and you contributed, you could have been like a, a cab driver, you know, and, um, and it would be like if you volunteered long enough, they would hire Always. you. I mean, that was the best way to get in there was to volunteer. Yeah, I mean, some of the, the people that would, and, and this was the, the the great thing about that. You know, we'd have receptionists who would, uh, on their spare time, would volunteer to f- follow. You know, the um, ENG camera people, say for example, and then become ENG camera people because they'd land on the job. They had no technical training and they would hire them because of the fact they put in the time. Do you know, you know what I mean? I mean, obviously your skills would have to be up to, up to par. Hi, that's what happened to me. When you think yeah. about it, I was a receptionist and yes, I had a university degree and yes, I worked at the local cable company at the same time and I went on the air there, but I made a demo tape for John and Nancy at the cable company when I was working there, when we were still at 99 Queen East. And we were in the big office at that point, not the small one. And much music was already on the air. And I showed it to JD and he went, this is shit. And literally, this is shit. And he said, we need to make you a better one. Do you remember when the crew got together one night and gave me the greatest gift because you guys shot my demo tape. Do you remember that? Okay. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I wasn't there. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I don't remember. I remember we shot a number of demo tapes for people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember when uh, I remember seeing your demo tape. I remember that. Um, and JD was a big, you know, supporter. Um, oh, basically he saved my life. You kidding? He taught me everything. Yeah. He was no, I know. I know. I'd sit down. I remember sitting down with you going, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. And, you know, like to a point, I, I think, you know, you might, eyes might well, like, start to well up with tears, but you know, he's right. Like he was showing you, cause you know, a lot of times you don't see it in yourself too. Right. You know, they always say you, you like, you, you should, you should watch yourself back. I don't know about you. The worst thing in the world is to watch yourself back do anything. And I believe it was Humphrey Bogart, I might be wrong, so someone can like be quoting this, said, watching yourself on this big screen is like eating your own vomit. And it's true. It's like sitting there and you're going, oh, God, this is fucking terrible. You know, so, I mean, it's good to have someone sitting there going, yes, you know what? You're doing fine, but here's your mistakes. And... um yeah, no, I, I I remember like, but that's what it was about. Like everybody supported everybody else and everybody wanted everyone to do well. What I remember as much as there was all of us working together, 
that there was really a lack of direction. So I got zero direction when I would go in for a shift or the on-air people. We were all just sort of making it up minute to minute. And I wonder for you as I'm talking to you as the producer who also now on air experience, um, was there respect for the on air people who had to make shit up all the time or were they just annoyed by the fact that the on air people were making shit up all the time? Um, no, because you know what? We were all making shit up all the time. But uh, <laughs> to answer the question, I mean, obviously, like, not everything that came out of, you know, either your mouth or, or Christopher's or whoever else, or JD's, I might agree with. At the same time, like, you know, uh, I don't think there was any, any lack of respect. I think perhaps um, in the beginning, you stumbled a lot, which was, I think, very frustrating for people like myself, between you and me. Oh, no, wait, wait, there's a whole audience now. <laughs> you know, and it was me like, ah, oh, fuck. But at the same time, you know, like we were all, all getting through it. Like, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was suddenly an associate producer. I'd been working there for like a year. You know, it was suddenly <laughs> like, oh, okay. I used to be a PA, you know. Uh, and now you're producing a show and you, you know, you're working out as you go. So I think, you know, in... When I look back, I probably should have had more patience with other people, but you didn't at the time because you didn't think about it. And at the same time, you know, I think probably people fucking hated me too. You know, it's probably like, what's this fucking goof? You know, you know, he's been here for like a week. You know, so um, I, th- I think it was it was twofold. It would have been nice, I think, to have a bit of direction. Yes, it would have. <laughs> and at the same time, at the same time, I like the fact we didn't. Because we kind of made it up, mm. and I think, I think it genuinely came across on screen that there was there was spirit to this thing, which you know a lot of times I'm watching a show now and it's like, oh, there's nothing in this at all. Which I, I honestly I didn't used to believe. I used to think that people said that about much music, but I'm now starting to think as I get older that it was true. Is there was a certain amount of um, you could feel the energy through, I think, the, through the screen about what was happening. And the fact, I think, people knew we were kind of making it up as we went along. And I think they went with us. And it was like, oh, I get it. We're all in this together. And I think the audience went a little bit as well, you know, because we used to involve the audience. And especially once the building, you know, we, we moved to the, the new building on 299, new building. It's back in the 80s. Um, <laughs> I think of it the like, same way. <laughs> yeah, all the glass windows and everything, I really added to everything because then people could come and actually watch the chaos as it happened. You know, and it was great. And it was like, you know, the audience were involved as much as we were. Simon, you were... That makes sense. You were there right at the beginning because in order to get the license for much music... Uh, John and John Martin and Moses had this idea to start doing an overnight music show, kooky late night show to show that they were already doing it, which in fact worked in their favor, which is how they got the license. One of the reasons why they got the license for much. So it was called city limits. And that show was kind of nuts. And 
certainly done on a shoestring. And that's where Christopher Ward was brought in as the host. And yeah. you and Morgan were on the team with Michael Hayden and Ann Howard as producers. I would love yeah. to hear from your point of view what that was like, because that was before there was an MTV. That's before yeah. there was much music. So you were basically paving the way for what much music would become. So tell me a little yeah. bit about being part sure. of that. Um, okay, so we started in September uh, of whatever it was. Is it 83 80, or 84? 83, yeah, 83, 83. And... Uh, and then in October of 80, 83, they decided, uh, John Mon decided that uh, we were going to do this all night show. And um, what they did was, as you mentioned earlier, it was on a shoestring. So the, uh, the way that they had the control room, it's going to be a, a little convoluted, but I'll make it brief. So the control room that they had they did the news and pretty much every show out of quote unquote city TV was in this control room that had open windows. So if you came in from the outside, uh, meaning, you know, if you were sitting in the lobby, you could look into the control room. That makes sense. Yeah. And you could open the windows. Right. So what they did was they put cameras on the inside. They shot the, just, just basically the control room. So they had, you know, the, you know, PA, the director, uh, whoever else is doing, you know, the, the Chiron, you know, whatever. Um, and they, sh they, sh they shot that and put a host in the middle of it. So obviously you didn't need a set. You didn't need any kind of, you know, extra lighting except just lighting, you know, the control room. And that was and, Moses's um, idea of being part of the process, right? That was, that yeah. was his... Yeah, that's how it all kind of started. He had a strong like, vision for that. Yeah, is being that, you know, you don't exclude the audience, you, you bring them into your world. But to be honest, you're right. It was done because it was cheap. It wasn't like we didn't have a budget for it. It was just, it was, you know, it was done. And yeah, we went on the air at one, well, we went on after the movie. So it, sometimes it was one o'clock, sometimes it was one fifteen. you know, depending on what the movie of... In the morning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, we worked overnight. And... um and it was like, from there, it was just like, you're right. They hired Chris Ward, uh, was a friend of John Martin's from the past. And he was a singer songwriter originally. And he'd done some, um, second city work. He'd worked with Mike Myers, which we'll mention earlier on. No, later on. I mean, sorry. And, um, yeah. So he came in as kind of the host of the, you know, the show quote unquote, and it was, it was basically just throwing to videos, just like, you know, this is what we can do 24-7. So as you said, it was the, you know, this is to show the CRTC when they granted the licenses that we had the chops to do it. We had the video library already from the, the new music. That was already, you know, sort of in place. We had clips, you know, we had interviews. We had things we could bring to the table that no one else could. So, you know, we had, and we had some, you know, then quite famous people. We had people like you two and, you know, who went you two yet, if you know what I mean. But um, so, yeah. So, I mean, that was all on, you know, the board. And then it was, it was basically another one of those. Okay, guys, there you go. 
now you have to make this work for five or six hours, depending on how long, you know, you're on the air for, which, you know, like we did. And that's when we did crazy things. Like we made up little skits and at three in the morning when you're sitting there going, okay, what are we going to do now? You know, and including people like Chris's friend at the time, it was Mike Myers. He came on, he did a, com- a number of skits. One of them was Wayne. It was the first time you saw Wayne from Wayne's World was on the city limits because he played his cousin Wayne from Scarborough. And which is, you know, a borough of Toronto, if you don't know what Scarborough is. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was like crazy times once again. Did like, everybody, like, was it, everybody high doing this? Like, <laughs> no, actually, strangely enough, uh, there was no drug use really involved. It was all just, um, well, first of all, you couldn't because you'd, uh, as interns too, we'd work all day and then we'd basically either go home or, or go to the pub and then come back at like 1 a.m. and you'd start working. But you'd have to prep the show, right? So we'd probably be there by 10.30 at night just to make sure that everything was in place and everything was ready to go because it was videos at that point. It was actual, you know, you inserted a videotape, right? Um, but no, I don't think anyone was high. I mean, there might have been some shenanigans going on during the show, but, um, you know, we did have a little thing where we didn't open the bar till 3 a.m. We'd buy like a 12 pack of beer or something. But no, there was no, um, yeah, no. I, I mean, it would look like if you watch some of the, the later tapes, it's like, but no, it was it was just more like the fact it was late night and we were all young and you know full of and and nobody stopped you. You could have done whatever you wanted and nobody was there to say no. Now Moses was known to be a night owl, so would he show up at some of these shoots? Yeah, occasionally. It was always a bit of the uh, Doctor Doom kind of scenario showing up because you know a lot of times he liked what he saw. And a lot of times he'd have some input and it's like, uh, and his input wasn't, you know, particularly um, pop culturally relevant, if you wish. So it would be like, I think we should do more with, you know, opera singers. I'd be like, okay, not really going to go down with the 20 somethings that are watching our show all stoned out of their minds. But yeah, so it'd be a little bit like that. Um, but for the most part, I think uh, he actually stayed away for the most part, I think. He came in a couple of times, but it was mostly to rag on the fact that nobody looked happy. I remember that. He sent us a memo once saying everybody that was at the control desk didn't look happy enough to be there. And it was like, yeah, but you know, it's 3 a.m. and everyone's just... So, I mean... Everyone just tried to look happier. <laughs> I think we're pretty happy. Sai, one of the, I think, most important jobs that you and Sherry Greengrass, Morgan Fleury, Craig Halkett, that you guys had, you were in charge of programming the videos for our regular video flow, which was essentially the bread and butter of much music. So tell me yeah. about... What were the rules of programming? Did you did you program the shows for each host? Like, did you play the music that I liked for a show? Um, how much Canadian content was there? 
you know, right. I, I'm just wondering, like, what were the rules for programming uh, much music? Right. So what we did was we set up um, the same as most um, radio stations do, uh, just to a to make it easier, and b to all always get in like the hits that people want to see. Because you remember, like, like back in the day, videos were actually something that people were interested in, meaning they would actually run home to watch them. Like if Madonna was putting a new video out, we'd say, this is going to premiere today, 5 p.m. People would actually go home and tune in to see the new video, right? So um, with that said, so we would have um, our schedule set up sort of like an A, B, and C, kind of like a rotation. So the A's were the definite plays. And they played like, you know, once every six hours, say. And then the Bs played every other day, once every six hours. And the C play, Cs played like three days, right, three so it's times. Like heavy, a week. medium, and light rotation. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. Well put. Um, and then in between that, you'd add your own flair, right? You'd add your own, you know, the oldies or everything else. And then, yes, we would probably culture it a bit to, you know, what you liked, say. Being you were sort of a younger, you know, hipper sort of girl, we would probably program stuff that was more your kind of vibe, right? As opposed to, say, a Christopher Ward or JD or John, as he is now. Um, you know, it, so you did sort of take, uh, kind of cater it a bit to who it was, like Mike Williams, obviously. Um, was like the soul king, right? So we'd probably throw in a little bit more soul music or R and B um, now, to it. Or, when you were talking yeah, about the um, the heavy, medium, and light rotation, that was yeah. decided because there was the weekly music committee. Yes. There, and yes. I see you smiling at me as I say that because there was a, a select group of much music people who every right. week disappeared into the boardroom with a pile of actual videos, you know, like yeah. three quarter inch videos that you yeah. would then debate and discuss. And at the end of oh, yeah. the two hour meeting or so, you'd walk out with that next week's playlist. Not yeah. many people got to see what happened in that room. So can you um, describe, like, was it a battle? Like, were people fighting and as you said you strangled john martin once like were you strangling each other to i want that um, goddamn video in or out it's not good or it's the best yeah no there was definitely a lot of that um only because uh everyone was well obviously everybody in there thought that they had the best ideas right um but you actually did right and i i well no i mean <laughs> i you know i i, I I thought what I liked was, you know, to be honest, like things like, um, I'll tell you, uh, two of the main fights that we had, right, was getting things like, you know, the quote-unquote alternative music scene, right? Uh, I remember trying to bring that to the forefront going, well, guys, this is really, this is getting really popular, right? It's not just popular with, you know, the punk, quote-unquote, punks of the day, it's now becoming a thing, right? More and more people are listening to it. We should probably start to bring it into the mainstream. The other one was rap, 
right? In the beginning, rap music was basically, it's like, yeah, but you know what? White kids are listening to rap too. It ain't just like urban, you know, music. Uh, it's not a, it's not no longer just a genre of, it's now a thing. It's not like, it's like the punk thing. It's no longer just a thing. It's like now becoming mainstream. A lot of, you know, a lot of um, music out there is crossing boundaries and now becoming, it's now become a hit song. And it's not just because, you know, so there was a bit of that fighting happening as well. But, and then of course there was the like, I think, I think this song's going to be a hit and people going, I don't think it is. And that would win. It would, would get into the, um, you know, back and forth of things. It's like, well, you know, your opinion is as good as mine. And then, well, let's see what happens with the song and see who's vindicated at the end. Because if it does become a hit, then, you know. Did you vote? I was right. Was there a vote? What? Like on each? Yeah, there was more. Yeah, it was more of a voting sort of situation. I mean, there was a lot of things that were a done deal, right? If Madonna puts a song out in those days, it was a hit. Done. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it is. Mm. You know, she could have be hitting herself on the head with a spoon. We still would have played it, right? Um, but there was, yeah, there was a, there was a lot more of, um, uh, not debate, should we say, but yeah, there was a lot of argy-bargy back and forth between the members of the, of the committee. And yeah, there was some, there was a couple of times it got heated for sure over things. I mean, stupidly, really, when you think about it. You know, but you were fighting for what you believed in. Right? Exactly. And you believe in something, not like now. Sai, think about it. You, yep. how many people were in that group? It was you, Morgan, uh, Christopher. In the original one, there was like seven people. Right. So I you think. seven people, you kids <laughs> were basically dictating what would become popular in the Canadian music world. Did you understand really? the gravity of your decisions. No, not really. I mean, now we also use things like, you know, um, Billboard, the top 100 and the record, uh, which was the Canadian equivalent of Billboard magazine. For you kids that don't know, there used to be things called magazines and people used to read them. And um, yeah, and there was a lot of industry trades that had what was going on, like what were the stats were. So, you know, a lot of that was taken into consideration too. It wasn't all just off the fly. So, um, you know, obviously if it's entered number 40 in, you know, the top 100 of Billboard, hmm, it's probably going to be a hit, which means radio is going to play it, which means you're going to listen to it and you're going to want to see the video. So we all, you know, we all, all played that game. At the same time, though, yeah, you're right. Like, it would be like, this is a great video. The song, not so much. The song's not a hit, but the video is excellent. So we're going to play the video in high rotation because the video is, you know, the two guys from 10CC who went on to be really great video directors have just made this fantastic video for... Um, Cry. Yeah, for a band uh, you haven't heard of yet. So we're going to play it in high rotation because it's not a hit, but it's, you know, it's an excellent piece of filmmaking. So there was a bit of that too. Yeah. But in, in conclusion, you're right. There was a bunch of kids basically programming the station. And yeah. deciding the 
who would live and die in the music business. It was a, it was actually a huge responsibility. Um, yes, yes and no. I mean, if it was Canadian bands, I think for the most part, um, you know, there was always a high respect for Canadian artists. A, because obviously, you know, you're fighting the U.S. to get uh, any kind of um, recognition in a way. Um, plus, you wanted to support your own. So even though some of it was a bit lackluster, in my opinion, um, you know, we still we would still play it in heavy rotation because, you know, these are Canadian artists. They've got things behind them. They're touring Canada. There was a little, a little bit of that. Um, Simon, I have to read this. Yeah. Okay. I found this on the internet. Here we Ah, go. It must be true. The original and still the best host of The Wedge, Cranky Brit Evans, had filled in as host of City Limits after fellow Brit Kim Clark Champness left. And while his on-air demeanor was at times intense, it suited the genres and bands covered. Evans had an encyclopedic knowledge of music, which paired with his moody northern accent and made for great TV. And that is the transition from Simon Evans, curmudgeonly producer, to Simon Evans, curmudgeon on-air personality. How did did they pick you, or how did you end up on air? Uh, It's an interesting story. That was obviously my mom that wrote that, by the way. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, okay. Well, what happened was, um, we had, uh, I think three, three VJs had quit in a row. Uh, Angela Dorman, I think was one. I can't remember what the other two were. Anyway, they'd all, all buggered off to do other things. And there was no, there wasn't really that many people to fill in the on-air slots. So, once again, being it was much music and being that we all got together to put on a show, um, they decided to let on-air people, oh, oh, sorry, staff people be on-air people. So basically, if you had any kind of, you know, aspirations to be on-air, and at one point, because I was a bit of a critic of on-air people. Yes, you were. (laughs) Yes. I, uh, John Martin, our good friend who from the, you know, 15 minutes ago said, hey, you should do that, mate. Give it a go. And I'm like, all right. So I did it. I did it. Um, uh, a shift, which was, I think, four hours at the time. And, um, Stuart Copeland came in. Yeah. Uh, from the, from the police. From the police, yeah. So you had to interview Stuart Copeland Copeland. on your first shift. And I was like, you know, I'm not really on air, right? And he's like, no, I can tell. He's like, ah, fine. You know what? I'm not really really in a band. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, and anyway, so in the meantime, I'm on the air. John Martin is in a meeting with our good friend, Moses Nimer, and a bunch of other hybrid bro and John goes oh I just want to put this on because we have our staff doing intros to videos so this is on I'm on Moses says according to John you know 
this is the kind of guy. Uh, this is my bad Moses impersonation, <laughs> by the way. Okay, this is the kind of guy that we should never put on TV, which is why we should put him on TV. I don't know. I don't like. He's like so. And literally, this is how I got off with the job. So Joe goes, eh, "Come here, man." Like, and I go in. And he was like, "Listen, uh, so Moses saw your thing, and uh, yeah, do you want to do it? Like, take a couple of shifts a week." And I'm like, "What?" He's like, "Yeah, you know, like I don't know, throw you an extra few dollars or something." I'm like, well, "I don't know, can I think about it?" Like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." So I thought about it and, you know, spoke to the wife at the time and, oh, actually the same one. Um, and it was like, oh, she's like, oh, what the? I'm like, yeah, but I suck on TV. I suck. I'm terrible. She's like, yeah, but you always think everyone else is terrible. I'm like, yeah, you're right. So that's how it started. I'm dying. Oh, I'm seriously, it's not, oh. you know, it's a true story. I know it sounds made up, but it's not. I know. And that's how I got, and it was like, oh, God. And it, you know, I gotta be honest, Eric. I, you know, I hated it from day one in, and it was like, and they paid me, I think, about like twelve thousand dollars more a year or something. It was like, you know, we're gonna give you like five, and I'm like, I'm not doing it for five. All right, six. You know, it was like one of those kind of conversations. Like, I don't really want to do it. You can find someone else. You can find any kid on the street at that point. Love to be on much music. Anyway, that's how it started. So, and he's like, yeah, as he once referred to me, because as you well know, you have to deal with Moses. Oh, you have to deal with Moses, right? Yeah. He uh, <laughs> called me uh, once. The is, I was the dirty shirt in his laundry basket of DJs. And I was like, I have no idea what that really means, but I'm kind of liking being the dirty shirt. He's like, you're the dirty shirt. Simon, I'm I am dying. How fun! So when you on, went on air, and you hated it, yeah. did it change the way you saw the other on-air people's performances? Um, yes and no. I'll tell you why. Because uh, I didn't want to be there, and a lot of people did, and uh, I thought, you know. I didn't go home and hone my craft, as they say. Yes, in a way, it did. Because I, I, I honestly, from the beginning, I didn't think it was easy. I just thought, you know, like, uh, I've chosen to be there kind of thing, right? So I had. And it was like, so now I have to make this work the way, I, the way that I can. And, you know, I had to do it the way that I did it, which is probably not the best way to do it. Uh, it was just me. And I thought, you know what the thing about it is? I can honestly say if somebody comes back and go, you know what? You were being pretentious. I'm like, no, it's just me. It's just me. This is what you get, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, like when I look back, you know, I was probably harder on people than I should have been for sure. I don't know. I was just trying to, uh, I don't know, trying to make things better. Why was I mean to you? Is that what you're saying? I may have been. I think everybody was mean to me at some point. So don't worry about it. I still love you and loved you then. I, oh, do know, I, mean, I don't think it was any hard feelings. I mean, oh. the thing I liked about, about much was I could have a screaming fight with someone. And I mean, a screaming fight. And then, you know, an hour's time, we'd be at the pub together having a drink. Like it was all, 
that was then, this is now, you know? Yeah. You know, they always like, it was like working in like, you know, a high-end kitchen or something where, you know, everyone's screaming at each other to get the meal out. Once it's done, everyone's like, hey, we did it. I don't know. I, I think that's a really great sort of description of it. And I think that is true. And what also happened in the process is that I think deep, deep relationships were formed because yeah. of that. Like we, there is a, a relationship that you and I have or Morgan and I, or David Kynes or the guys who are on camera, the, you know, Basils, et cetera, where it's like we went through the war together or something. Yeah. It was more like it was like in the field stuff that things got a little heated too, because, you know, you obviously, you only had one shot at this. Like you're in London, England, and you're interviewing whoever. This is it. You've only got one go. And, um, you know, to be the most part, though, I, I mean, I can't remember, like, you know, you were always prepared and perhaps, you know, I didn't agree with what came out of your mouth or something. But at the end of the day, we got it. We got the footage. Right. And we got, you know, we got it done. And, you know, perhaps. But then again, you know. I'm not I'm not a, I'm not a smart guy. Like, it's like I have one opinion, you know. Were you on the road with Helix in Europe? Me and me and Gordon McWhorters. What happened? Um, well, so basically uh, what happened with that is they, uh, they were looking for someone to tour with Helix. Um, yeah, as you just said, through Europe. Yeah. How I agreed to do it, I don't remember, but um, must have been drunk. And um, yeah, I was like, sure, I'll go. And I don't know how, because Gordon McWhorters at the time wasn't really a field cameraman at all. He just got roped in through some kind of oddball situation. And yeah, we traveled in a Bedford van. Uh, it's the smallest van you can imagine in England with the entire band. Of Helix. The road manager. Yeah. So you were in, in the van with Helix, the road manager. Tiny you... van tooling around Europe. Yeah. And yeah. was it fun? Um... Was it fun? Yes and no. It was fun. It was the most uncomfortable experience of my life. And um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it was fun. I think we had some good times. You know, it was once again, Helix. You know, not to say anything against Helix. At the time, they were doing okay. It wasn't like we were touring with, you know, Bon Jovi. So it was a little, um, it was a little difficult. Um, shall we say? But yeah, no, like, like once again, it was one of those things that no one else would have done but us, right? And we made a one-hour show out of it, walking around the streets of Vienna with Helix. I don't know if you've ever been, but it's, you know, as you can imagine, a very prosperous, high-end city with a lot of very snobby people. And we're walking around with a dirty-looking rock and roll band shooting, you know, interviews in the streets. Was it fun? Yeah, of course it was fun. When I look back at it, it was fun. And I'm I'm still friends with God, and I still I see him every couple of months. Well, not so much lately, but uh, and yeah, we still reminisce about it a little bit. So uh, it didn't traumatize him so much. It brought us closer together. We're still friends. Uh, you know, I think spending a week in a, in a little van traveling around with Helix. So every time we would get out, going, "Oh 
Christ, how much more can we drink to make this seem like it's fun? But yeah, which we did quite a bit of, but yeah, yeah, no, there was some, uh, there was some experiences. I, I know that was a shitty story. I'm sorry, but no. Tell me about the different incarnations of much. So you lived through different incarnations. So there was the, I did. the John Martin era and then yes. was the Denise era. So how did, yes. what was different about the Denise era? I was gone at that point. Denise Donlan was running much music. John Martin had yeah. left. What was different? Um, well, uh, let me see if I can put this gently. Um, so when John was there, uh things was things were a little bit more um politically incorrect shall we say um there was a lot more freedom of things to do uh then again though you have to remember that the times had changed too right so you know we were we lived in the when when did you leave 1994 okay so you know, you saw the change too between 1984 and 94. You know, the music, you know, the whole, you know, video wasn't that special anymore. Things had changed a little bit. It used to be a lot more fun. Now it was just a business in a way. So Denise took over at a kind of a, a time when it, it was, it had not plateaued, but it was getting there, right? And we're starting to, you know, everyone was like, yeah, we don't really care that much anymore about what the new video is and everything else. So there was a little bit of that to do, defend it. But she was way more politically um, motivated as well. You know, it was more like, let's get the kids out to vote and let's do this and that and the other and let's play more, you know, music that matters. And it was like, yeah, but the kids just want to rock because they, you know, old song goes. So it was like, there was a little, a little bit of that. It was a little bit, I think, looking down upon things like real pop music. Um, you know, it wasn't, you know, politically or it wasn't, you know, quote unquote music in some people's eyes. And it was like, well, it is to the kids and they love it. So, so it was more you know, serious it, and more earnest. It got more earnest when it shouldn't have been. It should have been quite the opposite. It should have been, you know, we should be doing more of one of the Spice Girls than we are on, you know, I don't know. Greenpeace? John, oh, John Prine. You know, like it was like, yeah, mm -hmm. I don't know. I think maybe the kids just want to have fun. And then she left. No, I think. And then... Sheila Sullivan took over and yeah, I was, I was gone by then. Too, oh, okay. So I was gone in 97. So what happened? How did I move? Oh, well, I'd had enough, frankly, um, of that. And, um, the space channel, uh, had just started. Um, Marcy Martin was in charge. She's another executive from, uh, City TV. I was really interested in space exploration, not so much the sci-fi part, but more the um, science part. And they were doing a lot of that. So I uh, I went for the job and uh, I got the job. Um, had a bad reputation, evidently, when I went there. <laughs> evidently, I was argumentative. Me. Shocking. Come on. 
I know. Is it true that when Denise said, it's time for you to go, you argued with her and you said, actually, no, it isn't. True? You told it up. <laughs> you got your research. That is true. That is true. I had two things on my side, though. I got supposedly given my walking papers, if that's the right thing, because uh, of my attitude and not because of my job performance. And I said, well, you know what? We have agreed to disagree. I think some of the things that you do are not quite what I would do. And I should have been a little bit more tight-lipped. But you have to remember, we grew kind of up together, right? So we were friends. So as a friend, I would be able to go to you and go, you know what, Erica, you kind of suck right now. And you have the right to go, well, fuck you. And I'll say, okay, but I've had my say. Well, that didn't, didn't wash too well, I guess, later on in life. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, but I also was still in the union. So it was like, well, yeah, uh, you can't actually fire me without the union being present, which they're not. Um, and she's like, no, no, we're just having a talk. It was like, okay, we're just having a talk. I said, I will keep my mouth shut. I won't say anything anymore. And we went about our business for a little, a little while. Yeah. And then you went to space. And then it went to space. Yeah, but you know what? I was already on my way out anyway. Like, I'd done it for how long? 13 years or something? 14 years? Like, I was like, I was ready to go. Yeah. It was longer than that, Simon, because I was there for 14 years, and you were there for three years longer. So you were almost there 17, 18 years. It's crazy. I was. I see. So it was almost time for me to go. It was. But yeah. Anyway, I'd like to say to Denise, though, I think we put those, we buried those hatches too. So I think everything's cool, but. It's hard though. I mean, it's, it's hard when your work colleagues become your bosses. That's a, it, it changes the whole dynamic. Yeah. You know what? It wasn't so much that I just didn't agree with what was happening, I think. And I, I used to be far more vocal you will remember um, than I am now and in retrospect I probably should have kept my mouth shut because it wasn't my position to say that but I always thought that there was an open dialogue so if I think for example that you're not playing enough pop music and it's huge and you know that's what the kids want and I come and say it I think that maybe you'd listen to me as opposed to not that's all so how long were you at space for Oh, um, for 10 years. Really? Uh, yeah, 97 to 2007, actually. Yeah. And then CTV took over. Uh, they bought out Chum. And then, because uh, I was a uh, supervising producer at the time, uh, I got kind of turfed, which I expected, you know. That must have been... A hard time for you, though, because you had been part of that building, that company for, at that point, if I do my math correctly, 27, 28 years. That's almost 30 yeah, years. Yeah, uh, no, yeah, 20, yeah, 20, I don't know how many, I don't know how many, I'm trying to think about how, how was my severance package? How many years was it there? Um, it was. At the same time, though, it was kind of nice because uh, I didn't particularly want to live under the CTV world. 
already lived under the chum world. All I could see was like CTV were way more corporate. And now as I understand Bell is even way more corporate than that. So, and I, I, I didn't mind when actually moving along. Like I kind of half expected it. Um, There's a lot of people these days who are losing their jobs, obviously in broadcasting, yeah. but in so many different fields. And there's, I'm sure that there's a lot of big emotions involved in yeah. leaving something that you're familiar with and then the fear of the unknown. So how did you deal with that? Did you get a job right away in broadcasting? Did yeah. you change direction completely? How did you deal with that time? Um, yeah, no, I, um, it's a good question because uh, at the time I thought I'm done with broadcasting because I thought, you know, I've been there for so long. Uh, I wanted to, to try something new. And um, at the time, like, you know, I, I'm in a, a fairly, I'm lucky enough to be in a fairly comfortable spot, if, you know, financially and everything else. So, you know, the, the wife was like, Look, take some time off. Think about what you want to do. You've worked, you know, for the, since you were 18. So why don't you just have a little holiday and think about things? And I did. And I thought, well, you know, what am I going to do? So I worked for a charity for a while. Dressed for success, I worked for them. Not worked, but you know, volunteered for them for a while. What did you do? And uh, I did like a lot of well, a lot of you know, as a volunteer, you do a little bit of everything. So I didn't do too much. I did a bit, a bit of marketing for them. Um, you know, I got Jeannie Becker on board. You know, things like that, like little things, like going like, well, I know these people, and you know, maybe they can help. And then she, you know, it, so I think she still works with them now. Um, you know, so many years later. Um, so I did that. And then, you know, I did a couple of other things. And then I ended up working on a garden center. It was right at the end of my street. Do you remember? Um, I don't think you will, though. But I don't know, you know, but John Reeves used to do a thing on City Line. Okay. You won't know. Anyway, he's a friend of a friend. And I noticed that the Reeves people were opening something at the end of the street. I always like I always like gardening, so I was like, ah. so I worked in a garden center for a year, and then they closed. You know, little things like that, and then yeah, ended up uh, back on the kind of heap, and that's when I hooked up with David Kynes and Hollywood Suite, which is the place I work with now, which is like Movie Channel, um, a great movie channel. He would like me to say, if you don't have it, you should subscribe. And, uh, yeah, so um, unfortunately, not much of a story. Yeah. Well, that is, I a, wanted to, that, uh, you know, that is a story. Here's the story. The story is that you leveraged your relationship that you had nurtured at Much Music, David Kynes, and you had worked together for many, many years. And I'm not sure if you reached out to him or he reached out to you, but in any case, that's what people do when they are in transition for a yeah. career is you go to your network and that's what you did. Yeah. Yeah. No, what happened was with Dave was, uh, he contacted me on a freelance, uh, job before I worked for actually Hollywood tweet, he was doing a freelance, uh, gig and he was like, Oh, you know, I know you're unemployed at the moment. Oh, you you know, looking for something. Do you want to work on this show with me? And I was like, yeah, great. You know, um, as the producer sort of uh, like role 
And then, uh, and then, yeah. And then one thing came to another and then it was like, ah, you know, we got an opening and, you know, do you want to work in the office? And I'm like, sure. Yeah. So that's how it, that's how it happened. Yeah. It was more uh, of a freelance um, gig that became a full-time gig, if you know what I mean. Hmm. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, and, and the thing about it is I think, Erica, I don't know about you. I mean, you reinvented yourself in a way, obviously. Um, but it's like, you know, I, I thought for sure when you quit that something would come to me and gone, you know what, you've always wanted to be, I don't know, a salt miner. I don't know, something stupid, right? Doesn't happen. Oh, it didn't happen for me anyway. And I'm like, I thought, oh, you know what, clean my head and it'll be like, you know what I've always wanted to do is this. Never really happened. It was like, I eh, don't know. Don't know what I want to do. So maybe broadcasting is your thing. Perhaps. Perhaps indeed. I didn't want it to be when I left. I wanted to do something else completely different, but here we are. I didn't think I tried hard enough. Yeah, I didn't try hard enough, probably. Okay, if I were to ask you, what did you learn at much that you still use today? Two things. One, I would learn that, yeah, you should probably go with the first idea that you have and do it and see what happens. And don't sit back and think about it because if you start to think about it, you won't do it. And that's what we used to do was because especially with live TV, it was like, we got to come up with something now and do it. Right. And it was like, we've got literally like a pack of videos, which was like what 12 to 15 minutes. We got to come up with something now and we got to do it. And, and it worked for the most part because you're, you know, your head's in it. So don't double think yourself. Or, or whatever overthink. that expression is. Um, yeah, overthink yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Good thing you're here. I don't know what the other thing would be. The other thing would be like, you know what? You get surrounded by the people that always surround yourself with the people that you think will do, not the best people for the job maybe, but the people that you think are have got that in them that they can do it. Meaning that, you know what? You might not be the best technical person, in your job, but as long as you've got that attitude and you've got that little thing, I don't know what that little thing is, but that's about the only thing. Cause I was thinking, you know, there's people that we worked with that honestly, you know, weren't the best of the jobs, but they were the best for the job. You know, that, that the job that they were in, like got much, you know, like they fit the personality of the place. So it's not all just about experience and skill. It's also about just having the right fit and having the right mindset. I think that's about the only two things. Probably a lot more. Once we hang up, you know I'm going to go, oh, I should have said that. You have an opportunity now that I'm sure you've been waiting for for years and years. You get to, <laughs> you get to interview me. You get to ask me one question. And I'll be stringing all these questions together, and I will do – uh, a show about all the VJs interviewing me. So is there something okay. that you would ask me that now that I've, since I've pummeled you with questions. Okay. Let me, can I ask you a couple of questions? We'll see. And you can pick the best sure. one. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, you were speaking about uh, earlier on, we were talking about, you know, you being new, being on air and everything else. When you think back about that, what would you do to change what you did on air? 
when you were a kid. Mm. Like what I mean by that is like when you watch yourself back and let's face facts, we were never the best. What do you think you would have changed to make yourself better that you didn't do? Does that make sense? Yes. And in fact, I'm going to answer it differently with a story that I think you'll appreciate. Part of the problem when I was on air is that I was all over the place. I didn't know, I didn't know how to tell a story as a broadcaster. And as you and I discussed, there was no help from the producers or John Martin or, you know, no one coached me. One person did. If you remember a guy named Bobby Gale, who worked at yep. Polygram Records. Of course, yeah. He came up to me in a bar and said, can I, can I give you some advice? And I was like, I'll take anything, buddy. Help me out. And he said, you actually don't know how to tell a story. And I said, explain to me what you mean. Because I'm always open and I'm curious. I like to learn. And he said, when, when you're on camera or when you're a broadcaster, you have to tell a story from beginning, middle, and end. So when I first started, I would just sort of vomit out information, but it didn't have a point to it because no one told right. me that you had to. I would just give information. Right. And he explained to me that you have to tell stories, that your information, each of the throws or whatever that I was doing, is a story. So tell yeah. a story from beginning, middle, to end. And that was, I probably had been doing that job for probably a couple of years. And I think that was the turning point where I started to become a little more polished because they were, my throws had a point to them. Right. And that, I think that's part of what was missing. And just yeah, learning and how to, how to, uh, you know, act cool when you weren't feeling cool inside. Right. No, you know what? That, that's an interesting thing to say. And you know what? We should have been a little bit more um, uh, on the ball on that. When I think about it, you're right. Uh, I, I think what it was, too, was that um, that we were all, I guess, struggling through our own little thing. And perhaps, yeah, perhaps, you know, in the future, like, I got to think you got to think a little more about that kind of thing. as like the people that are around you. And what they're going through, you know, that whole thing is like, you know, you're going through some problems. Yeah, everybody is. Um, so, yeah, you're right. We probably should have been a little more aware of that. Not you, though, because you were the same age as me. You t you were not. No, I know. I know. Giving I know. me advice. It was the older people, the ones who, you know, technically would have had more experience. But yeah. I, the other side of the coin is I stuck with it. I persevered. I learned, you did. I learned the chops. And I now can carry on a good podcast, you know, because of... Well, right. Well, that, that was going to be my next question, actually, is like, what do you, would you have done differently after you left Much Music? Would you have done something different on your path to success, if you will? What would you have done a little differently? Like, would you have maybe gone into a job job as opposed to doing your own thing. Like when you left, how did you feel? Like what was like, cause obviously you were on air, 
you know, you've only got really two options now, right? One is, you know, yeah, you can get into producing or whatever else, or you can be on air. What was, what were your, what were your feelings when you left? Like, what did you feel scared and what were you going to do? When I worked at much, I don't know if you remember this, but I was told by several people that I was replaceable. So I knew that one day someone would probably ask me to leave. So I was making plans you know, the whole time. So that's why I had my hat company and my songwriting. Yeah, no, I remember you, you're very entrepreneurial. Very entrepreneurial. Yeah. Yeah. So when I left, um, you know, you can't sit and wait. People hired me. I did several shows over five or six years, Life Network right. and Discovery, TVO, did lots of stuff. But I always felt like it was important to be entrepreneurial because someday the phone's going to stop ringing. And it did, especially when I had kids. People completely lost interest in me because at that point I was officially old, not interesting, mainstream, no more rock and roll. So my career was pretty dead. And rather than moan about it, I just got to work and immerse myself in the world of parenting. So if I would have done anything differently, I would say no. But I will say today, as I'm older, that I don't really have a pension. I really still am, am an entrepreneur and I still kind of eat what I kill. And sure, I wish that I had a job where someone paid my paid me regularly for the work that I did. Absolutely. I, I wish that there's, I'm not going to hide the fact that it's, it's a tough grind to be your own boss and run your own businesses. Um, but I think that I'm better creatively and I feel more fulfilled and I'm proud of myself that I've managed to reinvent so many times and I can still pay the bills. So I couldn't do anything differently. Um, but I, yeah, sure. I wish I had a little paycheck now and now and then that yeah. I didn't have to yeah. work for, for sure. But yeah. that's not, that wasn't the future of my life. Yeah. Well, I'm not blowing smoke up your bum because you know I'm not that kind of guy. But no, I, I am quite proud of you and what you've done because like you really did reinvent yourself and become something that was completely different, really, than television. I know it's the same sort of thing, but, you know, and I was like, wow, yeah. Look at you. And you and you know, you're still putting food on the table and keeping a roof on your head and I know you got a husband and you know, no slouch, but um yeah, but still. No, that's um no, you're I think you've done amazing. Thanks, Sai, so I much. Because and you know and you know I wouldn't tell you that. <laughs> I do that. know that. Yeah. That's why I asked you to be on this podcast because I needed this validation thirty years later to hear you say that I'm, yeah, that's I'm right. free to move on yeah. now. That's right. Yes, because that little English fucking dickhead didn't. Yeah. Um, one last, last question. One last question. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Keep yummy, mummy. What I mean by that is the words, the name. Because you know it's be kind of like now. Are we going to reinvent that site or? Oh, did I you? Did. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm out of the. Loop. Yes, about seven oh, years ago, we changed the name. <laughs> To ymc.ca. And you're right. That's a good question, Sai. I'm sorry. You have to be reinventing my business. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's your business, right? So I, I just wanted to, you know, because, you know, what, what's trendy 
then is not trendy now. And, you know, you see all the companies do it, but I just wanted to, uh, but now you see I'm out of the loop. So now my question is like, <laughs> shut the fuck up. Yeah. 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 Thank you, Sai. I'm going to say um, my yeah. goodbyes to everyone who's been listening to us. Um, to remember, if you are listening to the show and you enjoyed it, my God, Simon Evans, he deserves five stars, don't you think? So it would be great if you could review the show, um, leave a comment, uh, spread the word about reinvention of the VJ. And you can even have a, a, a call-in number, uh, 833-972-7272. Sai, did you know that? that? People can actually phone in just like the old-fashioned days, and they can leave a message, and we'll play it on the show with questions or memories of much music, 833-972-7272. Thank you, Simon, so much for joining me today, and it was very cathartic, <laughs> and I love that you're still a curmudgeon. It's so awesome. Thank you, Erica. You're so welcome, and for those of you who enjoyed this show, hopefully you'll join me again next week with another episode of Reinvention of the VJ. Here's to living a life filled with music, meaning, and many reinventions. Thanks for listening. Follow Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ podcast. Subscribe and follow more episodes. Click to reinventionofthevj.com. Podcast produced in collaboration with Steve Anthony Productions. Editing and coordination of Flalo Communications, Inc. Copyright 2020. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast. But we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.